You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. It has been since April 2001 that I last had a conversation with the BJC, and from that time until now, there have been a significant number of cases and events that have occupied the BJC's efforts. As this conservative-weighted Supreme Court is more fully leaving its judicial imprint, significant changes are occurring throughout our nation at large, including matters that bear upon our religious liberty. Once again, I am honored and delighted to have back as my guest Jennifer Hawks from the BJC to keep us updated on all that has been going on and to help us understand how these decisions and issues will have potential effect on our future. As Associate General Counsel at the BJC, Jennifer provides legal analysis on church-state issues that arise before Congress, the courts, and administrative agencies. She also assists in education efforts and responds to pastors and other constituents who have questions about church-state matters. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thank you for being with me again. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Always glad to be here. Um, it's been a year and five months since we last spoke, and there has been an awfully lot of things going on. It's been a busy year for sure. Yes. So let us let you run those down for us. Um, and let's, so let's start. Uh, there was a case uh, in Boston uh, about uh, the, the uh, raising of the Christian flag and the waving of the Christian flag. Uh, talk about that. Sure. Um, the court last year heard a free speech case called Shirtlift versus City of Boston. And um, the city of Boston, for about a decade, had had a program where um, private citizens or organizations um, affiliated with the city of Boston could submit an application and say, hey, Boston, instead of flying your city flag on your, on your city flagpole, why don't you fly this flag for our organization or this issue that we want to promote? And for about a decade, this pro- program had run and no flag had ever been denied. Um, and then um, came Mr. Shirtliff's application from Camp Constitution, a group that really wants to highlight Judeo-Christian foundation um, as they see um, within American life. And so they applied to fly the Christian flag and the city of Boston denied it. So it was the first time um, someone was de- denied from the program saying that um, it, was, it was a religious flag and no one had ever asked to fly a, a religious flag. And that's just not what the program was set up for. Um, and that they were afraid about some p- potential establishment problems. Um, and so they said no. And so Mr. Shirtliff filed his lawsuit um, and it eventually makes its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court um, it ruled nine to zero. So it was a, it was a slam dunk win for, for Camp Constitution. And they found that the city of Boston had created a program that allowed private citizens to engage in private speech. And because of that, they couldn't say no and they couldn't turn away um, one form of speech because because they didn't like it or they didn't agree with it or it didn't fit with the city's messaging. Um, And so the case really came down to what kind of speech was this flagpole. Um, If if the court had found that the flagpole was government speech, then the city of Boston, of course, could have turned away any flag that that they didn't want to fly as not matching with the city's messaging and and city's responsibility to to protect freedoms of of all of their citizens. 
Uh, but the court found that it, it was free speech and it was individual speech. And so Boston can't pick and choose the, the, the speech that, that it likes in a public forum. Just as a reminder to my audience, uh, clarify for us the Establishment Clause and the Free Speech Clause and how those function. Sure. So the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are the two religion clauses that are in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Um, and so the, the First Amendment uh, starts with, with those, those famous words that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the majority of our religious freedom protections hang from those two constitutional provisions. So they're very important. They're foundational to our system. Uh, the Establishment Clause uh, is supposed to prevent the government from um, establishing a national church, um, picking religious winners and religious losers. Um, we see funding as, as an essential part of, of what an establishment was. Um, and so BJC is, is, is very active in, 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 in fights about whether um, to what extent government can fund religious institutions. Um, and, you know, it, it's also about the government can't prefer uh, religion to non-religion um, and, 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 and such. And so free exercise is what we're all more familiar with. So that's the ability to practice your faith, to gather for worship, to, to teach your religious values to your children, to wear religious garb, to follow a religious diet, um, you know, to express yourself, um, engage in evangelism or proselytizing um, and, and such. So um, our, our founders were, um, were brilliant men in some ways, and this is one of those ways. They knew that government could infringe on religion either through establishments um, or through uh, pro uh, prohibiting and limiting the way that people can exercise their religion. Um, and so it's, it's one of the only rights that we have that's protected in, in two different ways that, that work in tandem. So what role did the BJC play uh, in the Shirtliff versus Boston? Sure. Um, because Shirtliff was a free speech case, um, BJC did not have a brief in the case. Um, however, uh, we're doing a lot of work um, on, on, on Christian nationalism and how we see it in society um, and, and, and how it's damaging to our political discourse and to um, the health and vitality of the church. And so we really saw the Christian flag as an element of, of Christian nationalism, especially a Christian flag being flown on, on a city, city flagpole um, and what message that you're trying to, to, to communicate there. So uh, my executive director, Amanda Tyler, and our general counsel, Holly Holman, um, did, did um, some podcast episodes and on their program, Respecting Religion, um, wh where they talked about uh, the Shirtlift case um, coming up, and, and, and they talked about it post-decision. Um, and we did, we wrote some articles about it and, and, um, and, and definitely answered a lot of questions, uh, but, but it, it was not, um, it was not a religious freedom case from our perspective because the court was focused on the question of speech and, and what kind of speech was involved. Okay. Well, the second case, uh, that we'd been, we'd talked about discussing, um, was a case involving a, a death row inmate. Uh, and this one is an unusual one in the sense that um, the BJC uh, was on the same side as folks that you normally aren't on the same side with. <laughs> uh, but this is the Ramirez versus Collier. That's it. Yes, sir. Um, so, so, yeah, the, the, this was, as you said, a, a religious freedom issue that came up within the larger context of the death penalty. 
Um, our brief is with um, some of the more con- groups that are viewed as conservative, um, and we are always proud to to work with them when we agree on on a case or a legislative issue or an approach to religious freedom. Um, and so, um, so we were certainly glad to join with Christian Legal Society, the Southern Baptist, Seventh Day Adventist, and, and other religious groups um, in standing up for the rights of prisoners. Um, but to to back up a step. Um, this case, again, is in the context of the death penalty. And the question before the court was really, it boiled down to, can prisons prohibit all religious activity in the execution chamber? Um, And so the death row inmate, Mr. Ramirez, um, wanted wanted his pastor to be with him in in the execution chamber. And the state of Texas said, that's fine. We'll, We'll let the pastor in. Uh, but he has to stand over against the wall and not say anything and not do anything and just 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 kind of be there. Um, and but Mr. Ramirez um, objected to that because what he was asking for was he wanted his pastor to be able to touch him, to hold his foot or his knee, you know, some part of his body that that was not involved in the in the injection protocols. Um, but he, he wanted that 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 physical comfort, um, and he also wanted audible prayer. So he wanted to be able to hear his pastor pray over him as he transitioned from this life to the next. And the state of Texas said, no, pastor can be there, can be present, but he's got to be silent and over in the corner. Um, So the case came up to the Supreme Court um, and the court granted it on an expedited basis. So there was like two or three weeks to put together a brief and a coalition. And, um, but, but we were all really interested in this, in this case. Um, And so our brief is on the side of Mr. Ramirez, basically saying that, the state of Texas had their chance to say why this would be a problem and, and why it was necessary that the pastor remain silent and, 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 and confined to a certain space within the um, execution chamber. And the state of Texas failed to do that. They basically said, trust us, it's too big of a problem. Um, and, and, and so we have to prevent the pastor from being able to say anything. And we have to be able to prevent the pastor from touching the inmate in any way whatsoever. Um, and unfortunately for the state of Texas, the state of the law is, doesn't allow us a, a, a government entity to just make a blanket claim to, um, to the need to deny a religious practice. So there's a law called RELUPA. Um, those are the initials. The full name is the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. So that's why we call it RELUPA. Um, and and it, it provides a big protection for um, land use, which is like zoning issues. So whether your church can can build on property or can expand. Um, and so and then it also protects in institutionalized persons, uh, which is largely prisoners. There are some others that that fall into that category, but mainly prisoners. So if you think zoning issues and prisoners um, have special protections, um, and the protections are that the government can't substantially burden your exercise of religion. So building a new church or as a prisoner engaging in some kind of religious act, unless there's a compelling interest and there's, it's the least restrictive means. So, um, so the, the, the government, if they want to burden your religion, they have to show that there's a really good reason to do so. And that there's, there's no way to do this in a less restrictive way. And the state of Texas simply failed to meet the burden. Again, they, they just made the blanket claim. Um, and in this case, the court agreed with us. So it was an eight to one decision, which is always great to see, um, you know, such uh, cohesion among the court. 
Um, and, and the court basically said that uh, Mr. Ramirez um, is likely to, to win on his claim. And so uh, when his execution date is rescheduled um, and, and, he, and he makes this request, it should probably be granted um, so that the execution date um, can, um, can proceed. Well, I was wondering about the execution date. It was because of the case. Was that delayed? Or was it expedited because of the, the date was coming up? Well, the um, the date that had been set was missed because of the litigation. And that's that's one of the reasons we kept expecting the Supreme Court to issue a really quick decision um, was to, to, to try to meet that date. Um, but um, because of the litigation, the date was postponed. Um, and coincidentally, outside of this case, um, the d- district attorney in Texas um, that that is over his case um, has had a change of heart and no longer feels that the death penalty um, should be applied in the way that it is currently being applied, and so has said that he's not going to ask for a new a, a new execution date for this inmate. Um, that of course could change with a change in DA or um, a change of heart um, again by this DA. Um, so this the the one dissenting vote in the Supreme Court opinion was Justice Thomas. And he didn't really look at the religious claims at all. He focused on 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 this delay issue that this is um, this was a bad faith effort by, by an inmate just trying to put off the day that they're going to be um, killed by the state, um, and and so that's why he voted against the prisoner. Um, but it turns out that this litigation, at least for now, um, has has saved the prisoner's life, and and his and he will he will remain in prison. Um, but but um, at least for the foreseeable future, there is not going to be an execution date set for him. Well, you talked about um, in the in the brief that you you sent me uh, that the difference is that in in previous cases uh, they've allowed the presence of the pastor, but in this case, there's a new role happening that he's actually getting to say something and getting to touch the prisoner and that, 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 that creates a different dynamic. Absolutely. Prior to this case, the real dispute had been whether or not prisoners were even allowed to have their spiritual advisor in the execution chamber. Um, a couple of States had a rule in place that you could have a spiritual advisor as long as it was a state employed chaplain. And there was always a Christian chaplain who was employed by the state. Uh, but depending on what state you're in, there may or may not have been a state-employed chaplain um, from a different uh, religious tradition. And so, so the court got um, had had a within about a two-year time frame had four petitions from inmates who were wanting um, who were wanting their own chaplain in the in the execution chamber, but that did not meet the state guideline. And so the court had really struggled with. Um, what are we supposed to do here? Um, but it kind of settled on, we should, we should probably allow the spiritual advisor. This is, this is this person's final moments of life. There's no chance to make up this, this opportunity. Um, and so, um, so that, that, that issue had kind of been settled. Um, and so this case was, was about what happens when the prisoner wants the spiritual advisor to do something. Can, can a state prevent that that person from being being allowed to engage in any religious activity, or 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 must that be occur uh, be allowed? And the court ruled in this case that it should because state of Texas put on no evidence 
as to why a pastor touching the prisoner and saying an audible prayer would interfere with the execution protocols. But that's not to say that, that any religious practice is going to be allowed or, or something like that, but that these two um, should be allowed. Well, I guess that kind of also bears upon the mode of execution, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th this this would not work in a, a gas chamber type situation, you know, where um, it, it would it would put the chaplain obviously at, at risk. So so Texas administers the death penalty by um, injections, and there is an injection protocol, um, and and it does need to be followed to a T. So uh, so Texas certainly had opportunities to make arguments. They just failed to do so. That, that they relied on, on on the blanket request that you know trust us that this is what has to happen. Okay. Well, then there's the 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 case um, of the coach uh, wanting to pray after the game on the fifty yard line. Uh, the Kennedy versus Bremerton. Absolutely. So this was this was the case that probably got the most attention. Um, and so the court granted it back in January, and we heard oral arguments in late spring and got the opinion at the very end of the court term in June. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was a case about um, a coach's free exercise right to engage in prayer on the 50-yard line immediately following a, a football game. Um, the, the coach had been doing this for a number of years before the school district found out about it. And was he was reported to the school district because he invited um, – the opposing coach to invite his players and to see if any of them wanted to join with him um, in the postgame prayer. And that coach went to the school district. Um, and when the, when the school district learned about it, they learned that he was actually engaging in a lot more activity. He was engaging in pregame prayers in the locker room with, with the players. Um, he was giving motivational speeches that were um, laced with religion and, 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 and were religion-based um, and then he, in addition, he was giving these, he, he was doing a post-game prayer on the 50-yard line. And so when the school district approached him, he agreed to give up the motivational speeches uh, based on religion. And, and he agreed to stop leading the uh, pre-game uh, pr uh, prayers in the locker room, but said that he had a constitutional right to, um, to engage in prayer on the 50-yard line. Government's not supposed to tell us when, where, or how to, how to pray. Um, and, and, and so from his uh, perspective, the government couldn't tell him that he could not pray. Um, what he was failing to account for was his role as a, as a coach at a public high school. He is the government and his leading of, of a prayer could be coercive to players. Um, we know that during the course of, lit of the litigation, um, I believe it was two families came forward to say that their son participated in the postgame prayer because um, uh, the sons felt that they would not be um, treated fairly when it came to game time or, you know, just being able to, to be, uh, you know, a full member of the team if they, if they refused to, uh, to participate. Um, Coach Kennedy said he never based playing time on the postgame prayer, um, but that was certainly a real concern. Um, and it wasn't just theoretical because we know at least the, at least these two players came forward um, to, to say that that's how they approached it. Um, and so the court really narrowed the focus of the case to look at the last three games um, and said um, that we're only looking at, at these games and we're only looking at, at the coach's rights. So does, does this coach as, as an individual 
have the right to engage in this prayer practice, and and the court ruled that he did that that he did. Um, I think it's important to highlight um, and can't say it strongly enough. The opinion does not in any way say that teachers can lead students in prayer. It it, it does not say that. The problem with this case is everyone knew what was happening. And the dissent includes pictures in the dissent to show what was happening, to show the coach surrounded by players giving this postgame prayer. It, it was it was far from a you know silent, quiet, uh, personal moment. Um, there was definitely a participatory element to it. Uh, but the court just ignores that and just looks almost like tunnel vision. We're just going to look at the coach and we're not going to look at the surrounding circumstances. Um, and so, uh, so there, there's a real question going forward on on how is this going to play out? And, and, and we've seen um, several groups and, and, and individuals talking about, you know, how this creates the right for teachers and coaches to lead students in prayer. But um, it absolutely does not, um, at least in this decision. Now, we don't know what's going to happen in, fu- in, fu- in future decisions. But as of now, the rules are still the same that teachers can't lead students in prayer. Um, but school districts do need to be re- reminded that teachers um, have the right to, to engage in personal religious exercises um, and perhaps uh, will need to reevaluate their um, their own rules and, and regulations about that. Well, what does this um, do? Because you, you touched on that a little bit about what the, what the possible consequences are. Um, does this kind of open the door for other fates? to do the same thing? Sure. There's nothing in the opinion that limits it to Christianity that says only Christian coaches can engage in in, in this practice. So presumably if if a coach is a different religious tradition and wants to engage in some kind of post-game religious ritual that's um, on the field um, um, in in view of the stands and and, and the students um, that they could. Um, So we will, I guess we will see if, if, if that starts to happen. Um, but the BJC brief in this case, um, we were, on, we were on, on the side of the school district um, and really standing up for uh, the rights of students and the way that teachers are supposed to protect the constitutional rights of their students. Um, and one of those very important rights is the ability to engage in religious practice. And so students should, students, students have the right to pray at school um, and that they have very strong and robust constitutional rights and protections. Um, and it's our teachers, it's our principals, our superintendents that, that are charged with their duty of protecting the, those rights for the students. Um, and so, so that's what the focus of, of, of our brief was. Um, and again, the court just, they just ignored that by focusing so closely on the coach and just the coach as an individual and not the coach as a coach who is, you know, still in his gate, his game uniform. And, um, you know, that the, there's been no separation, um, but, you know, to, to signify this is a, a, a private act instead of an extension of his, um, of his professional duties. He only had access to the 50 yard line because he was a coach. Um, the, the school did not have an open policy where, you know, anyone from the stands could, could come down and engage in a, a moment of personal expression. Um, so, so we, we definitely saw some dangers, um, and, and, and we, we can see some dangers, especially with the rhetoric around the case, um, that, that, that the case has been a, a big shift and, and has, has suddenly 
um, has suddenly affirmatively said that teachers can lead can lead this the, the students in prayer. Um, and so uh, we definitely want to focus on that and are closely monitoring the the cases that are coming behind. Well, the next case is the um, uh, Carson versus Macon case. Uh, and this one really gets into uh, the use of government funding uh, relating to uh, Christian practice. And so talk with us about that. Sure. So Carson versus Macon involves um, school funding in the state of Maine. Uh, the state of Maine has a very unique system. Um, I think only Vermont um, has a similar system. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's just very unique and, and rare in, in the United States. And it has to do with the geography of Maine. So I have never had the pleasure of, of visiting Maine. Um, I look forward to doing it one day in the future. Um, but because of its rugged beauty and, and population is, di- is, is dense in certain centers, but not, not evenly across the state, there are certain jurisdictions that they simply don't have enough people to support their own public high school. But the Maine Constitution requires that all students in the, in, in the state of Maine receive a free and public um, education. And so these jurisdictions, that there was a real question of how are they going to provide that public education when there's just facts, facts on the ground show that there's just not enough students to, to have their own school. And so the state created this, this, this three-tiered program. So if, you're, if your county is, is too, is too uh, remote, too, too rural to support your own public high school, you can, one, choose a neighboring high school and say, all of our kids are going to go to this other school. Um, or two, the school district can choose one private school and all of our kids are going to go to this private school and this one private school is going gonna, is gonna to replace our public education. Or the third option is that the state will pay the 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 um, sorry, the local school board can choose um, this third option, which allows the state to pay some tuition um, up to a certain amount um, in a private school of the parents choosing. And so, a handful of the school districts have chosen option three, um, and and so their students are uh, their students and families are allowed to choose their their own private school, and the state pays part of that tuition. Uh, so schools to participate in the program have to apply and be approved. Um, and religious schools are allowed to participate. They just have to agree to provide a public education. And so a secular education, they can't teach from their religious worldview. Um, and, but there are several religious private schools in the state of Maine who have chosen not to participate in the program because they do want to teach from their religious wor- worldview. Um, and, and they want to adhere to their religious principles, which they fear um, um, are not in alignment with some, with some of the state policies. Um, and so it, for this case, we, we, had, we had two families who wanted to send their kids to private schools that had not yet applied to be a part of the program. It was, it was two Christian schools. Um, and so they sued, saying the state, by excluding these religious schools who want to teach from a religious worldview, are actually discriminating on the religious freedom rights of its citizens um, because they are not allowed to choose that school uh, for the education of their children. Um, and so the parents lost in, in, in the lower courts and, and, and we came up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the issue before the Supreme Court, because uh, the court had ruled in a previous case just a few years ago 
that religious schools can participate in state funding programs. Um, similar um, it, in most other states, it's more of a traditional voucher where it's opened up to a broader group of people than this very narrow subset in the state of Maine. Um, but the question, so the question here was not can religious schools participate, but must religious schools be included in in a state's program? And we, we filed a brief saying no, that it's a violation of separation of church and state, um, that that um, that the state sh- should not be paying tuition dollars at religious schools that are wanting to teach from a religious worldview. Um, and and so, unfortunately, the court disagreed with us and found and ruled in favor of the families, saying that they should be allowed um, to to choose their private Christian schools um, as a part of the program. Um, the, the opinion was written by Justice Roberts, and was written in a very matter of fact way. Of this is not a big deal. This is an extension of what we've done before. Um, and in some ways, I, I agree with with his uh, captioning of the case. Because the really big break was five years ago in the uh, in the church playground case out of Missouri, uh, when the court said that states, you know, have to include churches um, in in these programs, in these funding programs. And that was a radical break. Um, And so this is just a follow up of of this radical thing that happened years ago. Um, And and so and so in that sense, um, I can agree with his statement that it's not a. it's not a big break, and it's it's just a continuation of of, of, of the of the recent cases. Um, ironically, um, the schools have not applied to be a part of the program, and and had not applied prior to this um, because they were afraid that they would have to change some of their practices. Um, because the attorney general for the state of Maine has reminded all schools, if you participate in our program, you have to agree uh, uh, you have to agree to abide by these state laws, uh, which. Um, include protections for um, categories of, of people, including protections on the characteristics of uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, and so the schools ha- still have not applied to be a part of the program. And so um, the, the, one of the parents was interviewed um, a couple of weeks ago and, and was still expressing frustration that they wanted the Supreme Court, um, but, but the school still is not a part of the program by the school's own choice. And so if the school never does, then what happens? I mean, what happens with the student? I mean, this lawsuit is over because there's no, there's, there's no court to appeal to after the Supreme Court. I imagine there is likely to be a, a new case filed either by these parents or other parents down the road um, saying that the school should not have to abide by the main human rights law that, that, that would require them to act in a way that, that they don't want to act in in receiving this government money, um, and so, but that that case has not been filed yet, to my knowledge, um, but is it, it? It's probably the only outcome that that these schools want, um, and um, and so that's a that's a case, you know, probably for a couple of years from now. Now, let me make sure I understand. Um, you're you said that you agree. Uh, with Justice Roberts, that it's more an extension of what they had done in the past. But for the BJC, what had been done in the past is something that you objected to. Is that right? And this is a further, And this is a further objection. Yes. So that you're seeing this as just an extension of something that's, that's deteriorating uh, 
which, which clause? <laughs> it would be the establishment clause. And so okay. um, the, the, the current court doesn't seem to have a high view of the establishment clause. So they have a really high view of the free exercise clause, and they continue to expand the free exercise clause um, in a way that, that appears to be swallowing the establishment clause. Um, and so even though the, this, this, this case out of the state of Maine dealt with money and, and, and issues that would traditionally be seen as an establishment clause case and whether or not the state was, was establishing religion to pay tuition at you know, a religious school teaching from a religious worldview, um, the court, you know, instead it was brought as a free exercise of, of the parents' rights to choose the school. Um, and, and so, so by, by expanding that, um, you know, the establishment clause is, is, is lessened. Um, and it's just, if, if you stop and think about it for a minute, it, it's hard to imagine that um, our founding generation thought that the free exercise clause could be used to demand money at a, at, at, at a religious institution. So at the time the First Amendment was adopted, um, the, state of, the state of Massachusetts still had their established church. They still supported it. And I can't imagine that any of them would have said, oh, yeah, the free exercise clause means that, you know, somebody can sue us to make us give money to this, this Baptist group or this Methodist group or, or, or this, this, this group that's not a part of our state church. Um, and at the same time, we had the state of Virginia who did not have a state church um, and ha had rejected that, had gotten rid of its state church, had gotten rid of its state support for its church. And I can't imagine that anyone in Virginia would have thought that, oh, well, the, we're going to vote to approve of the First Amendment um, with the idea that the free exercise clause is going to be used to make us start, start paying tuition dollars at, at these religious institutions when they had already made that break. So it's just hard from a historical view to see that this would have been anywhere in the contemplation um, of, of the states that ratified the First Amendment, either those that had a state church or, the, or, or those that did not. Um, but the current court is very focused on, on, um, on being robust protectors of free exercise, even if it in, ends up diminishing the establishment clause. But they, they can't get rid of the establishment clause. I mean, it, it's in the document, right? So there has to be some boundary eventually. It is. And I, I imagine they would find, you know, if Congress were to declare the U.S. to be a Christian nation, I imagine that would violate the Establishment Clause. Um, the question is, is there anything else? Um, and so um, Congress clearly can't establish, you know, Baptist as the national church. Um, but um, it, for BJC and for a lot of groups that support the separation of the institutions of, of church and state, um, we see the Establishment Clause as meaning so much more. And if you read the writings of our founders, it, it, it means so much more. Um, but if you interpret it to mean less, um, then everything rides on the, on the free exercise clause. Well, cause you, you touched on that and let's kind of move to that a little bit about, um, uh, your work, uh, against Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. uh, and how does this impinge, uh, specifically on, uh, what you all are doing? And, and why you're opposing this. Uh, so, yeah, so Christian nationalism, we define it as a political ideology that is seeking to merge our American and Christian identities. Um, so in shorthand, to be a good American, you have to be Christian. 
to be a good Christian, you have to be American. Um, I'm sure all the listeners of, of, of your podcast know that that is a completely false statement. Uh, the kingdom, kingdom of God is not limited by any national border, American or, or otherwise. Um, and from, from our earliest days and from our colonial days through the founding and up, up until modern times, um, we've had, the, the land has been populated by various, uh, by uh, people who followed various re- religious traditions, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, um, atheist, and, and others have all contributed to the success and the founding of our country and its, and its ongoing success. So, um, so the idea of Christian nationalism is, is, is simply false. Um, and, and so we, we are working to raise awareness um, it, 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 in its most dangerous forms, uh, Christian nationalism can, you know, can inspire violence. Um, it, and we, we uh, produced a report on how Christian nationalism factored into the January 6th insurrection. Um, and so it's a 60 some odd page report um, with a number of le- leading scholars who, who have c- contributed chapters to it. Um, and so, yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's something we, we are working to, to raise awareness of. We are creating resources so that um, everyone can have conversations within their within their own community and, and their own networks um, because it is it is one of those insidious ideologies that we can't legislate away we, we can't um, um, take it to a court of law and 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 and, and judge it null and void um, it, it, it's going to have to be relationships and networks um, that that have these conversations um, and and help us find a place um, that that our d- democracy can succeed, and also the church. Um, one of our points with opposing Christian nationalism is yes, it, it undercuts our democracy, uh, but it also diminishes the witness of the church, um, and th- that is something that that we care very deeply about. Um, as a Christian, I, I am an ordained ba- Baptist minister, um, so I'm very closely connected to, to to my local church and to my faith tradition, um, and we as Baptists and um, we, uh, know this old statement from James Dunn to be true that uh, for faith to be vital, it's got to be voluntary. And, and, and so that is um, the, the path that we want to continue to protect. Um, And, and we, we think that's best for both church and state. Um, This report is online, right? And then, and the name of it is. Um, I don't have the exact name of the report, but I think it's Christian nationalism in the January 6th insurrection. Um, but you can get it on our website, bjconline.org, or on our website, christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org, which is our campaign that we have, um, we've been running for a couple of years now um, to, to oppose uh, the ideology of Christian nationalism. We've got a tab on, on, on that website that's just about January 6th. We've done a webinar uh, where we hosted uh, Bishop Curry and, and Bishop Eaton from um, from their uh, Christian traditions and and had a conversation of, uh, about it and, and have created like a small group uh, curriculum to go along with that webinar. Okay. Well, there's a case. There's not a case. It's a it's a, a pending law, right? Uh, called uh, Save uh, Oak Flat. Yes, sir. Uh, Act, uh, Save Oak Flat Act. Yes, sir. Um, so tell us about that and, and what role the BJC is playing in, in that. Sure. The Save Oak Flat Act is, um, is an attempt to protect sacred land in, in, in Arizona. 
um, and BJC has been at the forefront organizing religious and religious freedom supporters uh, from across the country um, and to stand in solidarity with our indigenous neighbors um, to, to, to uh, continue to protect their land. Um, it, it's land that's in Tonto National Forest, which is about an hour outside of Phoenix. It is a beautiful spot. Um, it is truly an oasis. Um, there is water, there's vegetation, there is premier rock climbing, um, there's camping grounds, um, there's hiking trails. Um, it's just it's just this wonderful, beautiful spot. I can see why, why it is sacred to, to the San Carlos and, and other tribes in the area. Um, and, and it's currently protected as federal land. Um, President Eisenhower, way back in the 50s, um, said that we're going we're gonna to not allow mining to, to happen um, underneath this land um, because it is so, it's so beautiful, it is unique, it is sacred. Um, but things have changed over time, and Congress a couple years ago gave the green light for um, Resolution Copper to operate um, a mine um, underneath the spot, which will destroy it completely. Um, and so we, are, we have joined in the fight with uh, the San Carlos uh, Apache tribe, Apache stronghold, and 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 many other um, indigenous groups. There's environmental groups involved. Um, there's public lands groups, um, and and we've brought in the religious and religious freedom community. Um, I would encourage your your listeners uh, to visit to visit the BJC's website again, bjconline.org. Uh, we have a page dedicated to to Oak Flat, and we have a letter that individuals can sign. So so we would love to have as many names on, on that letter as we can get so that when we deliver it to Congress, it, it just shows the, the the depth and breadth of support for our indigenous neighbors um, who, to be quite frankly, um, to be quite frank, I guess, um, have been on the losing end of a, a lot of these fights and, and the um, greater religious freedom community has not always stood in, 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 sol- in solidarity with them. And so this is a chance for us to stand up and say that their outdoor sanctuary should be treated just as my sanctuary would be, and they and they should be given that respect um, and and acknowledgement. And is this um, similar to uh, the trend of uh, in other national parks of allowing like oil drilling and that kind of thing up in Alaska and and pipelines and those kind of things? I mean, is this except? I mean, in addition, it's got the the specific thing of the of the indigenous tribes saying we use this for for religious purposes. Yeah, so management of pu- public lands is is a big huge huge issue because um, Department of, of Interior and 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 others in the federal government are charged with effectively managing this lands. However, because of what Eisenhower did, um, the government can't own this land if it's going to be mined. Um, so it so it falls a little bit outside of land use, um, and so that's why the land will be traded to this mining company, and the mining company has bought up other land around Arizona that they'll give back to the federal government to, as a swap, um, and and you know so it's it, it was a sweetheart deal for for the mining company, um, but but yes there's there's many people in, in the federal government who, whose task is 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 how to evaluate. Um, um, companies that, that, that are applying for permits to engage in, in various um, mining or extractive industries work um, and, and balancing that with the uh, environmental concerns of, of maintaining this land. Um, as, as I know you're aware, 
Um, there's a major you know, water crisis happening in, the, in, in our Western states that, that's con continuing to unfold. Um, the, this project, the water required to start this new mine um, outside of Superior, Arizona, would be enough water to supply the city of Tucson for 40 years. So that, that's a massive amount of water in an area that, 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 is, that is in a mega drought. And, um, some, and um, some scientists and such are starting to use the word aridification, like that the desert is expanding and it's not coming back, that, that, that we are past the drought stage and that this is, this is the new normal. So it's, it's, it would, it's bad for religious freedom to, to just tell the indigenous neighbors that their religious um, freedom claims are unimportant, um, but it, it would be it, it would be a, another major hit to to, to the water crisis um, that, quite frankly, none of the politicians, state, local, or, or federal level, have, have yet figured out an approach to fight it. Well, as always, I am deeply grateful uh, that you have chosen to come and, and keep us abreast. Uh, I'm hoping that this will encourage my listeners, uh, to go to your site, uh, bjconline.org, right? Yes, sir. And, uh, and look at the resources that you offer, uh, read, uh, the, the briefs and the, uh, materials. Uh, and as you said, you, you have your own podcast. Uh, that helps explain a lot of this. We do. Se season four will be starting soon. So you definitely want to get signed up for it by going to your local podcast provider, wh whoever your favorite is. I I'm sure we're there. And if we're not, my email address is on the website. So shoot me an email and, and, and we'll figure out how to get on that platform as well. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for being with me. Thank you, David. Uh, and I look forward to the next time. Are already looking forward to it as well. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.